0: Scripture reading this morning it continues to be from Ephesians. It's two Ephesians two eleven through thirteen. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again, it's good to be with you. Uh, If you're on YouTube or here in person, we're glad you're here um, and worshiping with us. If you're new virtually, you can send us an email, we'd love to know you're there. It's info at northcrosschurch.com or sid at northcrosschurch.com. If you're in person, Uh, We would love you to to stick around afterwards and and get to know some folks and be known. But also there is a table, a welcome table in the lobby area that you can go and sign up and grab a free coffee mug and a pen and and a pamphlet or two all wrapped up for you. Um, We'd love for you to to let us know you're here. And if you're here again, we're really glad to be with you. That's what the the pleasure and the privilege of gathering together on Sunday is about, seeing each other and worshiping side by side, but also catching up face to face. So um, I am grateful to open up the scriptures and study them with you. But before I do that, the session, um, the elders of North Cross Church have asked me uh, to speak a bit about where the church is and where the church is headed by God's grace. And so um, let me start off by saying thank you. Thank you to everyone here um, who had regular attender um, or member who has just been so patient with the season in North Cross, it's been in a lot of ways, ups and downs, uh, lefts and rights. Uh, it's been a season in every part of our life, but even in church with COVID-19. Um, but also thank you to the volunteers. Um, we really do believe in a church of active volunteers. We want it not to be 10% of the people doing 90% of the work. We want it to be everyone doing everything together, side by side, and really we couldn't make this happen without you all, so we're really thankful for that. Um, and really along those lines, um, in this sort of season, we want to be on the same page together, and we also want to act and not react, which is a, a typical way that sometimes life is being done right now. And so big picture, your leadership at North Cross wants to be more intentional about shepherding you all. And so what we're doing is we have four initiatives that we're doing to shepherd better. Uh, First, um, we're equipping more servant leaders. We've trained and interviewed almost all of the newest class of deacons, elders, and women shepherds, and we hope to have them confirmed in the case of officers voted on by the end of 2021. Second, this means, also means if you're a church member, you are officially in a shepherding group, and you should have heard from your shepherding elder. Um, we want every member in this church to have at least one person who checks in on them and, and asks how you are doing in life and comes alongside you with comfort and counsel and prayer. Uh, and we hope this also gives an avenue for you to give feedback, whether it's church-specific questions or church-specific comments. Um, also, if you're not a member and you want that, we'd love you to become a member. Um, and so there's a discovery class in February. Uh, we'd encourage you to, become, to to join that details soon enough. Third, your session has been assigned specific ministry areas. Each member is overseeing an area. They're not running the day-to-day operations. That's for staff or volunteer committee chairs. But we are, we are having shepherding even of the ministry itself. Mark Andrews is over missions and outreach. Uh, Dean Whitehill is over men's and women's ministry. Damon Anderson is over youth and children's ministry. Scott 2 is overseeing our calendar and curriculums. Hudson Belk is over life groups. And I'm overseeing officer and servant leaders, past and future and present. And Matt Sider and I are together tag teaming to be overseeing Sunday morning and all that entails. So we'll put that somewhere in writing that you can look up. So if you need to ask a question um, or have a concern, you'll know where to go. Fourth and finally, our intentional efforts at shepherding mean this. We are beginning to open up and prioritize a search to hire a youth director, maybe slash pastoral intern, and also a children's director. Uh, We understand this is a pressing need for our church. Um, We understand um, that this has been a pressing need for a while and it's a pressing need now, and um, it will be in the future as well. And so we want to meet that need, but we want to do it in the right way with the right person who fits our church culture and understands our church culture and does ministry in a lasting way. Um, we want people to be ministered to and the ministry that they mature into to last into teenage years, adult years, and, and on. Um, we don't want this to be some sort of temporary stopgap entertainment measure. Um, I did 12 years of college ministry, 12 years. And I saw a lot of things that worked and a lot of things that did not work. And so what we'd love to do, that's my heart for this ministry. We wanna have qualified candidates that care deeply about the gospel, invest in relationships that last and so people can become uh, members of churches and even leaders in churches. And so spread the word to qualified candidates that you know of or are looking And also um, feel free to contact me or Damon Anderson um, about um, questions you have or concerns you have. Um, There is a job description for both of those positions available, and we have a budgeted line item, so we're serious. So (laughs) let us know. what what, what we can do, um, and please keep us posted. We want to open it up to your all's opinions. Finally, questions or concerns about any of these four shepherding initiatives? It's a lot to take in at once. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to an elder of the session, the people I just listed off who are over different areas, Um, and we'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to field questions. Thanks. Okay, so now we're going to seamlessly transition to the sermon, Uh, so brace yourselves. This fall, we're looking at the book of Ephesians, and we're looking at, um, thus far, we've moved verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we're in the middle of chapter 2. And this week, our passage, chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, begins with the word, therefore, and therefore tells us that our three verses, 11 through 13, are related to our previous uh, verse 10 where it left off. So verses 11 through three explain what does it mean to be God's workmanship? What are we to do? How are we to walk in the good works which were prepared beforehand for us to walk in? How do we do that? This passage this morning gives us an odd starting point. To move forward, we've got to look backwards. We've got to remember, verse 11. But before we dig more into verse 11 and the verses after that as well, would you pray with me and for our time together? And God's word this morning, Father, it's a lot to take in um, there's a lot of vision that was cast just in there and a lot to emotions that come with all of those different things and I pray uh, not that you would sideline those emotions but that you would help us to to digest them uh, with your gospel that you'd help us to to be with them would you be with us in our emotions about those things and would you help us to hold our plans loosely? but also to make plans that we need to take steps, but you place feet. And I pray that you be with our church even as we think and pray about doing um, these things that are so valuable to your church. And we pray that you um, would be um, with this preaching of your word. Would you meet us in your word? Um, We're in very different places with passages like this. Um, We're very different places with your word as as a whole and with you, Jesus, this morning and I pray that you would help meet us where we are by your spirit and by your word. Would you not let us leave this building the same people? Would you help us to see you, Jesus, high and lifted up, more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts? We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, um, Philip Roth was this important uh, author of fiction in the later 20th century. He's pretty famous for writing, and he's famous for writing a certain kind of style. Was sort of like a tell all, warts and all storytelling style. Uh, In Philip Roth's own words, I have chosen to make an art of my vices rather than what I take to be my virtues. So he's just writing about his own vices instead of virtues. Uh, That's to say that Roth wrote controversially about off color, unsavory characters uh, whose own shortcomings and appetites and entitlements and neediness were often distinctively his. (laughs) His most famous characters were Philip Roth, unfiltered by social cues and day-to-day compassion. So it was really interesting to read recently about how fussy and furious Roth got about the people who wrote to tell his story. He fired biographers. He sued ex-lovers when they tried to write about him. Roth wanted to design and steer his own image. Here was a famous controversialist who needed to be liked and failing that to be right. And he had scores to settle. He wanted to be known. This great fear was being forgotten. And he had to be interesting at all costs. And so what happened in the past mattered to Philip Roth. It mattered to his present and it mattered to his future. What's more is Roth understood how he saw his own past and also how other people saw his past mattered. It changed the very way that he lived. It twisted him up into knots. In our passage this morning, Paul is suggesting that what happened in our pasts matters for our presence and our futures. Paul is saying something more even. He's saying how we see our pasts, our personal and communal histories, this matters. It changes the very way that we live. But unlike Philip Roth, we need to let go of the editorial control, don't we? We need to stop zooming in and zooming out on certain parts. We need to stop cutting out and pasting in certain details. And Paul is asking us from verse 11 onward, he's asking us what would it look like to tell our stories as they really actually happened? And Paul suggests that this kind of honesty this kind of remembering, leads to a kind of present tense, thankful confidence. Instead of getting all kind of twisted up and knots about being liked or being right or just being interesting enough. So another way of putting all this is just to say, how do we begin to live as if we are gods? What do we start kind of walking? How do we start? And what do we do to start walking in good works? You know, to love others, to, to do what's right or what's good. And according to Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 13, we start to live out our identity as God's, God's own, by remembering our pasts and receiving the present. So remember the past and receive the present. And so our sermon outline reflects these first uh, one-two steps of the Christian life. It's a one-two step that we're always beginning again, returning to time and time again. First, verses 11 through 12, we need to rem- they tell us to remember, to name our past hurts. And then second, verse 13, tell they- this verse tells us to receive, to notice our present place. The sermon outlines in your e bulletin it's also projected behind me, likely. So let's begin at the beginning, and let's look at verses 11 and 12, and that first step of the Christian life, to remember to name our past hurts. It's interesting, it's not until this verse, verse 11 of chapter 2, that Paul actually tells us to do anything. I don't know if you noticed that but there, there's 33 verses and many, many, many hundreds of words before Paul gives us any sort of how-to application. But just, it's amazing, but just when some of us are just dying for a, so what do I do with all that? You know, all that chapter one blessing, all that grace and peace, blessings in Christ, power in Christ, or that chapter two resurrection triumph and the gift of grace, just when we're sort of desperately looking at the back of the Christian cake box for some certain instructions about how to proceed and bake a cake, just then, just now, Paul is telling us something counterintuitive, especially to 21st century Americans. To move forward, we've got to look backwards. Paul's first command in the book of Ephesians is remember remember. But what are we to remember? Verse 11, at one time, you Gentiles, that's anyone who didn't grow up Jewish or does not have Jewish heritage, you Gentiles were in the flesh. In the flesh means something very broad. It means something very specific. So let's start broad. Broadly speaking, Paul uses in the flesh to refer to our corrupted, human natural condition, that we are born and live in an inward curve. We're curved in on ourselves. The flesh says that this world and the people in this world, they exist to serve me and to meet all of my needs all of the time. And we can get so imprisoned by this way of conceiving of the world. We can get so lost in this ego trip that the Bible calls sin. Sin is what drives us to use instead of to serve people. It drives us to manipulate God instead of to trust him. So in the flesh generally means stuck in sin, but in the flesh specifically means something else. It refers to the practice of circumcision. The Gentiles were not circumcised in the flesh. Hence the Gentile put down. This is a derogatory name-calling moment in scripture. Okay. They're called the uncircumcision. boom. <laughs> Circumcision was a sign belonging to the God's people. It represented being near on the, out, on the inside. So what they're basically saying, the Jews are saying to the Gentiles in the first century, you're on the outs. You're not included. And this is why verse 12 describes Gentiles as formally separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul's saying before God saved Gentile people, like most of us in this room, before we received what it is to be in Christ Jesus, people from all over the world were and some some are still Christless, homeless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. It's a big list. Christless, homeless, friendless, Hopeless and godless. That is to say, this without believing in Jesus, we are Christless. We are separated from the one person in all of history who can actually heal internal and external divisions. Without Jesus, we're homeless. We're alienated from the rights and privileges of God's kingdom people. We're friendless. Strangers to the belonging and relationships of God's covenant people. That's who we were if we believe in Jesus now. We were hopeless, having no actual God-grounded hope of a lasting future worldwide peace. That's to say like a hope that no ideology or political party or self-image life hack can actually produce. We need Jesus those things. Without Jesus, uh, we are godless. And there is a lot more to say about each of these descriptions, and there's a lot more to say about how Paul clearly means for us to understand that concepts like godlessness apply not just to Gentiles in the first century, but also to Jews in the first century, right? And you know, the fact that they're trusting in the flesh, they're trusting in the mark of circumcision and not Jesus the Messiah. We could go on and on, but I do just want to make this bigger point. I don't want to lose it. Here's the bigger point. Paul is asking us to look back and name what hurt. And though that sounds easy enough, in practice, this is hard to do. And it's really kinda hard to want to do, isn't it? I mean, why step back into what was hard? Why dig around those big feelings like homelessness or hopelessness or friendlessness? Why excavate what still very much hurts? Well, let me give you two reasons. Two reasons why contemporary life only confirms Paul's commandment to remember. The first reason to remember what was hard is summarized best by the writer William Faulkner. There's this long and glorious version of this quote that I would love to just read out loud multiple times because it's so good. But instead, I'm just gonna give you this one sentence. The first sentence is enough. And feel free to read it on your own. The rest after that. The past is never dead. It's not even past. The past is never dead. It's not even past. And what Faulkner means here is that the past is behind the scenes shaping our present and future lives. Who we were and what happened to us is not dead, and it's not even in the past. It's very much alive inside of us and coming out sideways and straightforward in every which way in our present tense words and actions. And really the field of neurobiology just confirms all of this, doesn't it? Substantiated this claim. Qualitative and quantitative research has found that the human brain actually works like an anticipation machine. Okay, so think about how you conceive of a future event that you're uncertain about. Our brains are hardwired to guess the future by using these formative events or just things that happened over and over again in our, in our lives uh, in the past. And by the way, these are not oftentimes go-to memories for us. Sometimes they're well under the surface of our self-awareness. But our brains, they take these kind of events and they take these sequences and they throw them up over like an old map, familiar map. They throw them up over new and unfamiliar circumstances. And this is why past relationships, especially family relationships, profoundly influence how we understand our present day relationships, okay? So let me put it pretty concretely. If you were abandoned, if you were left alone when you did not want to be alone, If you have that kind of history personally, you're going to greatly fear abandonment, even in secure relationships. If you were abused, you're going to get hyper-vigilant about potential abusers, and so on and so forth. And there's so many other ways to describe this. So, in addition, past relationships also shape present relationships by the way that we automatically relate, we automatically react. Just think about your parenting if you're a parent. Parents tend to, without thinking, either repeat what our parents did, good or bad, or if it was really bad, we just react to the exact opposite. And the same thing goes with friendships or or ex-significant others. We're always reacting. Did mom or dad or an ex yell when they got angry in conflict? Did that happen a lot? Chances are you're gonna yell a lot and conflict, or you're gonna be stone-cold silent. Final neurobiological evidence of how much the past influences the present. Have you noticed moments in your life where something small produces an over-the-top emotional reaction? A comment, semi-innocent, makes you blow up or melt down, shut down or spin hard into anxiety. This highly charged or dead inside reaction can signal an issue from your past getting activated. Your mind is recalling a painful issue from the past. The trouble is that the kind of recall is of a kind of painful memory. It's often operating under the surface of self-awareness. It's subconscious or unconscious, but still deeply felt. And this is why And another book of William Faulkner, who is way ahead of his time, by the way, he says this, memory knows before knowing remembers. Memory knows before knowing remembers. And so Paul tells us to remember, to name the hurts, to make the unconscious conscious, conscious, to pull the past that is deeply running our lives to the surface of our mind's awareness. And that is how we transform and don't transmit the pain that's been done to us. And that is hurt people hurt others typically, right? Or to put it biblically, when we're sinned against, we tend to sin most, right? And so we need to cry out to God about the way it was and to ask forgiveness for the uh, the difficult situations and past experiences that we contributed to. In order to not repeat them, and in order to not overreact with others and with God. And if that sounds absolutely intimidating to do on your own, good. It should. Okay, it really should. You need community, just like I need community to do that. We can't do that on ourselves. We need self-aware readers and interpreters of our personal stories. We need counselors, yes, especially for deep trauma. But we also just need the church. We need pastors, we need elders, we need deacons, we need women shepherds, we need life group leaders. We just need wise, older, truth and grace saturated saints. But maybe you're a Christian this morning and the spiritual life doesn't feel like it's like a live wire on the fritz for you. Maybe it just kind of feels like um, much more mellow. Maybe your spiritual life feels more like a blah or a meh or it just kind of feels, it's not like a live wire, it's just like a room with a lot of light bulbs that have gone out and you just haven't got around to fixing them. The boredom that you feel, the boredom that I sometimes feel in church or in prayer or during a Bible study is also a symptom of forgetting. We've forgotten what we were like spiritually, the many ways we just couldn't do it on our own. All the despair and pride All the fear and frustration that lived at the edges of our lives and sometimes deep in the center. The lies we told ourselves when we broke our own rules for other people. None of us, individually or as a people group, not one of us in Christ Jesus was like we are today before. You can't assume you've always had these moments of the kind of gratitude and wonder, the kind of joy and purpose that you sometimes and I sometimes feel. Paul's point is to doubt our nostalgia filter, to catch hold of your new reality. Gratitude, wonder, joy, purpose, they're all wrapped up in verse 13's, but now. We went from far off and out of it altogether to near and in on everything. And this is worth taking the time to remember, to describe a change that you've seen in yourself to a friend. Or maybe just taking the moment to jot down a bullet point list of all the things that Jesus has rescued you from and is rescuing you from. And if you're just exploring Christianity this morning, we're so glad you're here. And maybe this just looks like, maybe faith begins for you by just writing what you want Jesus to do for you. What would he rescue you from? What do you need rescue from? But you can already feel the need for the second point, verse 13. We already jumped into it. We receive the present, we receive the present. That's our second main point. We can't name our past hurts accurately or for long without receiving and noticing our present place. First we remember the past, verses 11 and 12. Then we receive the present, verse 13. But notice the way that Paul's at pains to describe the present, right? This present place. Yes, it's near, not far off. Yes, it's on the inside and not on the outside. But of what? What, or rather who, are we near? Who are we on the inside with? Answer, Christ Jesus. And everyone who's been in church for a long time just rolls their eyes and sighs. (laughs) Oh, the Sunday school answer yet again, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But in our accounting of what does it mean to be on the inside, to truly belong, we could so often look right past Jesus as if he's like this kind of boring conversation partner at a lively, fun party. We're just trying to look around him the whole time. And historically, this has been true too. There's these beautiful murals and famous Christian buildings all over the world where where one example is that archangel Michael holds a set of scales weighing whether a sinner goes to heaven or goes to hell. And the details of the scene are vivid, even exacting. There's demons, and there's the Virgin Mary, and there's rosary beads, and each Virgin Mary and the demon is fighting over this poor sinner's soul. But do you know who's not in the picture? this dramatic Christian painting, Christ Jesus, he's nowhere to be found. (laughs) Or closer to home, geographically and theologically, H. Richard Niebuhr famously described the faith of many Christian Protestant churches as a God without wrath, brought a man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without the cross. Without sin, or without a cross, there's no need for Jesus. And finally, there's just the way that so many of us so much of the time actually live our daily lives. Like if someone kind of wrote down uh, verbatim, word for word, the thought transcript of your life on an average Wednesday, right, And and then they sort of proofread that, would they find the word Jesus in it? Would the name Jesus even appear there? Does your, does my, feeling like we're near the center of things, even on the inside of life, does that desire for that include Jesus? Or is the inside group, is the inside that we want to be in on, is that a group of friends? Or is that fame or fortune or a lifestyle or respect? According to verse 13, here's the true inner ring. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How do we get that? Maybe more importantly, how do we want to get that? (laughs) To answer that, we're going to briefly unpack two phrases. In Christ Jesus, by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ tells us how God achieved reconciliation. God's reconciliation with those who believe in Jesus uh, is, is an act that, builds the relationship between us and God, but also between us and other people. Simply, in a historically attested event nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus died as a sacrifice. His bloodshed on a cross, washed away our guilt, and freed us for living only for ourselves. And the removal of our guilt and our selfishness enables us to relate to God, but it also enables us to relate to other people, to listen, to see our own faults, to put their needs and their desires first, at least every once in a while. And the reconciliation Jesus' blood achieved for us at one time, this reconciliation achieved in the past leads to an experience of deep belonging in the present. This is so important. But now by faith we are in Christ Jesus in a relationship with someone who has and now shares all the gratitude and wonder all the joy and all the purpose we look for everywhere else and suck everyone else in our life dry for. By faith in Christ Jesus, we have the very things that we want. But the grind, the grind of life can make that feel oh so unreal. Sometimes, can't it? And really that's how that kind of sense of unreality about the truth is how the golfer Jack Nicholas felt in 1979. He knew he was a good golfer. He'd won a lot of previous tournaments for so many years in a row. But that year, 1979 was his worst year ever. In 1979, Nicholas didn't win a single PGA tournament, the first time in his pro career. And so at the end of his year on tour, Jack Nicholas went back to his childhood golf coach, Jack Grout, in Columbus, Ohio, my hometown, and and Jack Nicholas said to Jack Groot, Jack, teach me the game again. Teach me how to golf. And so Jack Groot took Jack Nicholas aside and said, Jack, this is a nine iron, and here's how you hold it. And Jack, when you hold a nine iron, you want your back, you want your legs, your feet to be this wide apart. And you want to stand just this way. And when you swing that back, this is how I want you to think about swinging it back. And when you swing it forward and through, this is what your, your follow through should look like. And so on and so on and so forth. And Jack Groot rebuilt Jack Nicholas's golf game by returning him again and again to the basics. And the next year, Nicholas won two majors. In record-setting fashion. So, what did Jack Nicholas ask for? And what did his childhood coach give him? Groot said this remember. Remember where you started from. And when Nicholas looked back and he remembered starting from zero, Groot encouraged him receive. Receive the good form you've been given. And whether we're here this Sunday and this past week has felt like loss after loss after loss, or whether we feel like we've been winning this week and it's been record setting, Paul's advice to us is exactly the same. Remember where you started. At one time, far off. And receive what you've been given now in Christ Jesus brought near. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these truths. They're um, simple, but also hard to hear, um, but also so relieving. And Lord, in our frustration, in our fatigue, in our eagerness, would you draw us back to yourself? Would you help us to remember and to receive? Would you be with us in that process? Would you change us by it? We ask this in your name. Jesus' name. Amen.